everyone. Welcome to the Registry Report Podcast. My name is Michael, and today we'll be talking about whether or not the sex offender registry is criminogenic. Now, criminogenic is probably one of those words that you're not familiar with. I know I wasn't until just recently. What it refers to is something that is the cause of criminal behavior. One of the best ways to remember this is the word carcinogenic. Carcinogenic being something that causes cancer. Well, criminogenic is something that causes criminality. Here is a textbook definition of criminogenic, the sort that you would hear if you were a criminal justice major in college. Whenever criminologists are trying to determine causes of a crime, part of that analysis examines the criminogenic needs of an offender. They often ask the question, if the offender had this, something the offender clearly needs and is lacking, would he have still committed this crime? Criminogenic needs are characteristics, traits, problems, or issues of an individual that directly relate to the individual's likelihood to re-offend and commit another crime. So criminogenic needs are those things that a person needs, essentially, to stay out of trouble. Unfortunately, this sort of analysis can get rather complicated. Take, for example, a bank robber. Famous bank robber Willie Sutton once said, I rob banks because that's where the money is. It would be rather simplistic to believe that if we just gave everyone lots of money, that we would be able to eliminate bank robberies. And yet there are people out there who believe that if we simply work to eliminate poverty, that we'll be eliminating crime as well. I don't think I have to tell you that I'm not one of those people. I think criminal behavior happens for a lot of very complicated reasons. And since we're talking about the sex offender registry, we're going to have to talk about why sex crimes occur and what systemic factors in our judicial system actually increase the probability that someone will commit a sexual offense. For the purposes of this podcast, we're going to use a definition of criminogenic as referring to the systemic socioeconomic and judicial factors that contribute to reoffending or recidivism. You will sometimes hear people talk about criminogenic needs treatment programs. And what that really refers to is allocating resources, time, money, and energy to where it's most needed rather than using a one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter approach. Now, you would think that, hey, that just sounds like common sense. Unfortunately, there's nothing common about common sense when it comes to the judicial system. One example from my own personal experience is the fact that when I was released from federal prison, I was sent to a halfway house where I stayed for four months before being allowed to go home to my family. And during that four months, I was required to take a drug urinalysis test every three days. Despite the fact that I have never been a drug user, my offense had nothing to do with drugs, and every single urinalysis test came back negative. A lot of the criminogenic analysis that you see these days focuses in on treatment plans and how to best allocate resources to where it's most needed. Here's one example of that. This is Dr. Singh of the Global Institute of Forensic Research. The criminogenic needs principle. The idea here is to identify the risk factors that are most likely to lead to acts of recidivism and use them as treatment targets. For example... If there are two offenders convicted of domestic violence, 
one who only harmed his wife when drunk, and the other who harmed his wife regardless of whether he was intoxicated or not, substance use treatment should arguably be prioritized for the first man, but perhaps not the second. In other words, rather than treating just any risk factor, prioritize treatment for risk factors most likely causally linked with recidivism. So he gives a pretty good example of how a criminogenic needs treatment program focuses your energy and resources where it's most needed without treating everyone the same and utilizing a one-size-fits-all treatment philosophy. Don't get me wrong, I think this is a great thing. Criminogenic needs treatment programs based on evidence are probably one of the best things to come along in a long time. But that's not really the subject of today's podcast. What we're talking about today is looking at the sex offender registry as a whole and asking whether or not the sex offender registry itself is criminogenic. This involves a lot more than just looking at what we might consider systemic causes of criminal behavior. It requires you to imagine that the system itself encourages criminality. It requires that we completely reimagine how we charge people with crimes, how we incarcerate them, and how we release them back into society. There was a great TED Talk by Melanie Snyder entitled, Breaking Out of Prison Thinking. I'd like to share a little bit of that with you right now. Our prison population has soared 677% over the past four decades. And America now has 5% of the world's total population and 25% of the world's prisoners. This led a Virginia senator, Jim Webb, to say... That means either we have the most evil people on earth living in the U.S., or we are doing something dramatically wrong. Now, think about that for just a moment. Do you really believe that we have the most evil people on the planet here in the United States? Or does it make more sense to believe that something is systemically wrong with our judicial system? And if the system itself is the problem... How did it get that way, and what do we do about it? Well, Melanie Snyder gives us some insight into that as well. Corrections has become big business. We are seeing government officials in some places turning over control of core functions of our justice system to private for-profit corporations. And those private for-profit corporations then lobby the elected officials to enact additional policies that will keep the largest possible number of people trapped in the system for as long as possible to maximize their corporate profits. What Melanie is referring to here is commonly called the prison industrial complex. And while I believe it is a very real phenomenon, I don't think it adequately explains just how broken our system is. I think many of the problems in our judicial system are older than the country itself. You could go back to the 1600s and take a look at the Salem witch trials. And the really scary thing is, we haven't changed all that much since then. Each generation has to have its boogeymen. In the 1920s, it was bootleggers. In the 1940s and 50s, it was the communists. In 1954, the United States Congress enacted the Communist Control Act which outlawed membership in the Communist Party. And believe it or not, 
That law has never been repealed or overturned by the Supreme Court of the United States. It is still illegal to be a member of the Communist Party, even now in the 21st century. In the 60s and 70s, it was the homosexuals, and many of them were persecuted, prosecuted, and put in prison for violating sodomy laws, which were designed specifically to criminalize homosexuality. Most states never even had a legal definition of sodomy, which allowed local prosecutors to define it however they wanted to in order to get the best conviction rate. By the time the 80s and 90s rolled around, we had declared a war on drugs, and drug users, abusers, and dealers became our new boogeymen. While it may be inconceivable for most of us today to even imagine someone going to jail for 20 years for possession of a single joint of marijuana, that sort of thing happened with alarming regularity during those decades. That brings us to the 2000s and the 2010s, and our new boogeymen are sex offenders. Each new generation passing new laws based on the social panics of their time. So let's think for a moment about the after-effects of each one of those social panics and the laws and policies that were enacted as a result. Hindsight being 2020, we now know that the Salem Witch Trials had nothing to do with actual witches or witchcraft, and yet at least 20 people were executed as the result of a social panic instigated by a group of teenage girls. So assuming that there is such a thing as the crime of witchcraft, did the Salem Witch Trials make that crime less or more prevalent in our society? I'll let you be the judge of that. At the time, there were a couple dozen people accused of practicing the crime of witchcraft. Sounds like a minor problem, and yet here we are 400 years later still talking about it. And today, there are over 800,000 people who claim Wicca, or the practice of witchcraft, as their official religion. So let's shoot forward in time to the era of Prohibition, where the manufacture, sale, and transport of alcohol was outlawed from 1920 until 1933. This resulted in a huge underground economy, smuggling trade, and is arguably responsible for the birth of organized crime in America. A lot of people are also unaware of the fact that the Ku Klux Klan was one of the great forces behind Prohibition and enjoyed a great amount of growth and influence during Prohibition because of its policies. In 1916, there were 1,300 breweries in the United States. Ten years later, there were zero. Overnight, federal tax revenues from the sale of alcohol went from $365 million a year to just $13 million a year, while at the same time contributing to the astronomical growth of federal agencies with oversight over the economy, trade, and regulation of industry. So let's recap. Prohibition accomplished next to nothing in terms of its stated goals, which were to reduce alcohol consumption and the ill effects that it had on society. On the other hand, it gave birth to the Mafia and the Ku Klux Klan. It decimated an entire industry, put thousands of people out of work, reduced our government's tax revenues, 
and started a dangerous trend of government agencies regulating every aspect of our lives. So the final question is, did prohibition create more or less criminals in our society? I'd say the answer is fairly obvious. Did the communism scare of the 40s and 50s eliminate communists in America? And how did the war on drugs in the 80s and 90s go for us? So now that brings us full circle back to the past two decades where the boogeyman de jour happens to be sex offenders. To say that this is a social panic based on irrational fears rather than facts would be an understatement. Over 90% of sexual assaults are committed by someone known to the victim, not by a stranger, not by someone on the sex offender registry. The country is bombarded daily by media reports of child kidnappings and sex trafficking. And yet, according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, 91% of America's missing children are runaways. 5% of them are the victims of family abductions, a couple percent are simply lost, and less than 1% are actual victims of a kidnapping by a stranger. And oh, by the way, a small percentage of that 1% are people on the sex offender registry. There is no doubt that this social panic is an artificial construct designed to sell newspapers and attract eyeballs to news broadcasts and websites. So what happens when you start passing laws and enacting policies designed to fight a problem that, for the most part, isn't real? And by that, I am not saying that sexual assaults and the exploitation of children aren't a problem they most definitely are a problem. What I am saying is that the current social panic and the rash of laws that have been enacted to appease frightened and concerned citizens are not only failing to address the problem, but they are actually making things far, far worse. And why does the average person not see this? primarily because these laws and the emotions behind these laws make people feel better about themselves. Like Prohibition in 1920, the Anti-Communist Act of 1954, the War on Drugs in the 80s and 90s, the current War on Sex Offenders is an empty gesture which will accomplish very little but will have far-reaching unintended consequences. Before we get too far into the nuts and bolts of how the sex offender registry actually increases the propensity of some people to re-offend, let's take a look at some of those unintended consequences of the registry and the social hysteria surrounding this fear of registered sex offenders. I'd like you to hear this clip from a talk by Megan Fagundes in Austin during a TED Talk in 2014. This is the story of a 15-year-old boy. His name is Jamar Pinkney Jr. When Jamar's mother found out that he had sexually touched his three-year-old sister, she called his father to let him know. Jamar's father flew into a rage. He came to the house, pointed a gun at Jamar, and forced him to strip down naked. He then marched him outside to a vacant lot, told him to get down on his knees, and shot him in the face. Jamar's last words were, 
No, Daddy, no. Jamar's mother, distraught, said she felt she had a duty to let his father know, but she had no idea that he would react this way. This isn't something that you sweep under the rug, she said. We said we were going to get him help. Now, when this story hit the news in 2009, most people were appropriately horrified. But many applauded the father for his actions, saying things like, well, it was for the best. He never would have gotten any better anyway. Or, he was a sick pedophile. He deserved to die. Their own preconceived ideas, their own stereotypes, prompted them to vocalize support for a father shooting his own son in the head. Now think about that for just a moment. Did the Adam Walsh Act, Megan's Law, Jessica's Law, do anything to protect that three-year-old from her 15-year-old brother? No. Could it have? Probably not. What it did do was turn that 15-year-old boy into a criminal, got him killed, turned his father into a murderer, and destroyed an entire family. I understand that something has to be done about the very real problems of sexual abuse and exploitation of children. I get it. Just because I happen to be a registrant myself doesn't mean I don't recognize that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. But it needs to be addressed in a way that actually has some hope of fixing the problem, not making it worse. Let's listen to one more example of how the current state of sex offender hysteria and the unintended consequences of sex offense laws are making things worse. Well, I was with my friend and my brother and my dad at the YMCA, and we were just playing basketball, you know, having fun. And my phone vibrated and it said, new picture message. Riley is 12 years old. The picture he received was of a naked 12-year-old girl, a former classmate. A picture he didn't ask for and didn't even want. I looked at it, and then the kid who had sent it to me told my best friend that I had, that I had it. So my best friend said he, he wouldn't be my friend anymore if I didn't send it to him, and he kept saying that. And so I gave in and just finally sent it. I was uncomfortable. Like, it made me feel awkward. His father, Craig, picks up the story from there. Off we go Tuesday morning to school. Life is normal. And by 2 o'clock, things uh, changed quite a bit. Security cameras at the school had captured a cluster of boys looking at their cell phones. In total, 25 boys were interrogated by the school resource officer. And their cell phones were confiscated. By the time I got there, felony charges were pending. The end result of this will be, if convicted of this charge, they will, these boys will have to register as sex offenders. A registered sex offender? Jesus Christ, the kid's 12! Well, it scared me, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I cried for a second because I was scared. Most people find it hard to believe that there are children currently on the sex offender registry. As many as 89,000 children currently on the registry, and possibly somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 children who have been put on the registry but have since aged out of it or been removed. 23% of all sexually related crimes are committed by juveniles. Some states put juveniles on the registry as young as five years old. Many of them will be removed when they turn 18, but there are some states 
that simply never remove you from the registry, no matter what happens. Even if you are removed from the sex offender registry, you will always be known to law enforcement as a sex offender who no longer has to register. So one of the unintended consequences of this current social hysteria and rash of sex offense laws is that we have an entire generation of kids who will grow up being treated like social lepers and believing that they do not deserve another chance at life. Another unintended consequence of the current state of affairs is the rise in vigilantism against sex offenders. Now I realize that there are people out there who believe that this is a good thing, that the vigilantes are able to accomplish things that the police cannot. The vigilantism actually hampers the ability of law enforcement to do their job. You're done, buddy. You're going to jail. And that's how you get pedophile f***s off the street, right there. But the authorities in Alberta say getting pedophiles off the street isn't that simple. How many investigators and how many taxers? Inspector Dave Dubnick is with the Internet Child Exploitation Unit, or ICE, in Edmonton. What they're doing is, is absolutely not protecting children in any way. It's not making the Internet safer in any way. They often say, we're either working for the police or we're going to give our documents to the police and let them handle it. We don't ever see those documents, but I would just, to that end, I would say there's nothing we could do with that point anyway. They've already put it online. They've already they've exposed um, photos and videos. And in many instances, they've put the actual chat log online. They say they want to protect children. Isn't it some protection to know who's responding to some of these chats? Chasing an individual down the road and calling them a pedophile, I can assure you, is uh, firstly, it's not going to change that individual's behavior. And secondly, uh, I can tell you with absolute certainty that individual is, is going to continue to offend against children. And Inspector Dubnik says these confrontations can actually get in their way. He points to what happened in one of the creep catcher stings in Lloydminster, Alberta. We had a, an investigation ongoing here. One of our undercover operators was involved and, and very engaged with a subject online. Once we've reached that threshold, then we plan for a safe arrest of that subject. And we were right at that point with this individual. Creep catchers got involved with the same individual, lured him away from Edmonton to a location in Lloydminster, conducted their dynamic confrontation, chased him down the street for all intents and purposes, derailed our investigation. That man is now charged in Winnipeg with sexually touching a toddler and a baby. And I would say with, with a high degree of certainty, we will, could have prevented those two children in that case from being offended against. So this is an example of something that happened in Canada, but it is a good example of how vigilantes, in this case, not only interfered with an ongoing law enforcement investigation, but they actually enabled the further assault of two additional children. So this brings us back again to the original question, which is, is the sex offender registry criminogenic? Does it create more problems than it solves? People on the sex offender registry find it extremely difficult to stay in their homes, find or keep a job, and have social safety nets that people enjoy as a member of a church congregation or a social group. 
Most registered sex offenders are barred from attending their own children's school events or taking them to the park, going swimming. Even in cases where their sexual offense had nothing to do with children at all. A large number of people on the sex offender registry are there for child pornography, the great majority of whom have never physically touched a child sexually and would never dream of doing so. Yet they are barred from anywhere where children might congregate. So what happens when you turn someone into a social leper? When you tell them that they are irredeemable, unemployable, and unable to live anywhere where there might be schools, daycare centers, bus stops, or parks. By the way, those restrictions typically make about 95% of the town off-limits to registered sex offenders. What do you think happens to people who have no hope? People who are shunned, humiliated, and turned away at every opportunity. It's not unusual for these people to become despondent, isolated from their families and friends, dependent on alcohol or drugs. The unemployment rate for formerly incarcerated people is 500% higher than for the average citizen on the street. When we're talking about former sex offenders, there is literally no data available but my guess would be that it is much, much higher. And oh, by the way, why is there no data available? I'll tell you why. Nobody gives a crap. Because sex offenders deserve whatever they get, right? But here's the problem. Nothing ever goes away forever. Especially when you're talking about human beings. Keeping someone homeless, unemployed, hopeless, and humiliated is not the answer. I wish I had a simple solution that I could hand you on a silver platter, a silver bullet that would take care of this issue once and for all, but it just isn't that simple. Our first impulse is to do something, but let's make sure it's the right thing. Let's not, in our haste to do anything, make things so much worse than they need to be. I'm Michael M., and you're listening to the Registry Report Podcast.